coming up on Tech Nation, the founder and co-chairman of Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund, with over $160 billion under management. Ray Dalio looks back on what worked and what didn't in his life and his work. It's a long way from the two-bedroom apartment where he started it all. Then on Tech Nation Health, the biotechnology of CRISPR. We heard a lot about it a few years back, and now it may be just the ticket for the therapeutic you need. I'll speak with Katrine Bosley, the president and CEO of Editus Medicine. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Nobody argues that their baby shouldn't have a birth certificate. Well, okay, some people do, but the hassle of not having one in today's world is generally unworkable. Want to prove your citizenship? Enter school. Get a passport. Government-issued birth certificates have been accepted for decades although baptismal certificates were once more frequently used. And then there was the lugging in of the family Bible. In pointing to each baby's name and birth date, carefully written inside the front cover. When people didn't move around much and the technology didn't exist, this worked just fine. Something similar happened with social security numbers. When President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed the Social Security Act into law in 1935, the concept was to track people based on who would benefit. And thus my grandfather and grandmother shared a single social security number. You see, he worked at a job and she was a housewife. Just seemed right to the designers of the system, both of them would be benefiting from the contributions that my grandfather made as part of his employment. The idea of registering every newborn baby, I would venture to say they would find it laughable. In my generation, you didn't get a social security number until you applied for your first official non-cash job or you went to college. Many of us, myself included, made up a social security number on a form or two just to keep the process rolling. If you didn't have one, you had to apply in person and wait. And if you did have one, you'd have to find your card and then write it down. You didn't use it very much because it said very clearly, right on the card, not to be used for identification purposes. Pretty funny, since the point of the number was identification purposes, but you get the drift. Don't flash it around as an essential source of identification. When my firstborn came along, a generous grandparent with a career as a stockbroker thought the lad should start out life with some stock of his own. So we had to get him a social security number. And how did we do it? I held up the baby and my husband took a photo. We got the film developed and we sent it into the social security office. I mean, really? A bald, nondescript baby? And I have to be in the picture, or so I was told? Well, he's used it ever since, and no doubt it is ensconced in any number of databases. 
Today, some 90% of U.S. parents obtain a social security number for their baby at birth, and it's a regular part of the standard birth registration process. Social Security calls this EAB, which stands for Enumeration at Birth. At least they got that part right. It's enumeration. They're assigning your baby a number. And no matter how you might feel about it, it's part of the modern world. While 9 out of 10 American babies will likely think of it as the air. It's just there. But before you worry about it, if history and the arc of technology bear out, the current state of things is only a blip on the screen. You see, when it comes to biotech, there's DNA. And when a baby pops out, well, heck, there's his or her DNA right there, the ultimate identifier. In the future, the idea of being assigned a number to track you will seem incredibly archaic. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Ray Dalio, the founder and co-chair of Bridgewater Associates, which he founded 40 years ago in his two-bedroom apartment. Today, it's recognized as the world's largest hedge fund. We'll talk about his processes, his values, and how he sees the world in his book, Principles, Life and Work. Then on Tech Nation Health, the biotechnology of CRISPR, we'll hear from Katrine Bosley, the president and CEO of Editus Medicine. Bridgewater Associates founder Ray Dalio was born in 1949 with the front end of the baby boom, born immediately following World War II. Like many boomers, he's now looking back over his life. This we see in his book, Principles, Life and Work. I think we go through stages of life, uh, three stages in life. Uh, the first stage in life is when you're dependent on others and you're learning. The second stage is when you're working and others are dependent on you. And then um, you're approaching the third phase of your life when no longer is your desire even to be successful. It's really to have other people be successful without you. And so I'm moving into that second to third stage of my life in which, uh, you know, my main objective is to help people be successful without me. And so you're right. That's a stage of my life that has led to me writing this book. Well, it's interesting. It's just called Principles and then subtitle Life and Work. And there's three sections. It's like, here's my life, you know, where I'm coming from. Here's everything I got to say about my principles about life. And here's everything I've got to say about my principles about work. It's almost like I want to take every baby boomer and sit them down and say, okay, you write this book. Well, I came about writing the book not by actually sort of thinking what is my principles as much as 
uh, I got in the habit that I'd like to recommend to other people is that whenever I made a decision, rather than just make a decision, I would think of what the criteria for the decision were, what those criteria were, and I'd write those criteria down. And then by writing them down, some amazing things happened. First, I would be able to refer to them when something like that came along again, and it make my decision-making a lot better. But second, by being able to put them in writing and show them to other people and then work together, we could agree on what our principles were, and we could refine those principles over time. So they refined. They were like recipes. And then over a longer period of time, I began to be able to even turn those into algorithms and make decisions that way. So this is a bunch of recipes, think of it, of whenever I'm encountering something, what should I do about it? And the reason for my success has nothing to do with me. It really has to do with some of these principles, these principles really, these recipes. And most of them are from making mistakes because I found that learning came best from making my mistakes and reflecting on it. So that's what it is. It's this collection of, it's this recipe book. If you come across this one or that one, that's what you get. And it's been in the making for a long time. Well, I've been writing these for a long time and communicating them with other people, particularly the people I work with. And so that's really been over a period of maybe 25, 30 years. And you put these online at one point in a PDF, 3 million downloads? Yeah. I don't like public attention much. And um, in 2008, by following these principles, we anticipated the world financial crisis, and we got a lot of attention. And it was misunderstood. So I decided I would put them in a PDF file online, and I was shocked to see 3.5 million people downloaded them, and I received all sorts of thank you letters. And so now, at this stage of my life, I have a better collection of them, and they're better organized, and I decided to pass them along. Well, let's talk about where you're coming from. Forty years ago, you started a hedge fund in your two-bedroom apartment, and now it's the largest hedge fund in the world, 150, 160 million under... Billion. Billion. I'm sorry. A billion here, a billion there. (laughs) Pretty soon you're talking some real money, right? (laughs) And... uh, It's like you just kept going along, making mistakes and learning from them. That's right, right? So all I did is I go out and I play the game and then I learn. But I think we all do this. A book that was given to me by uh, my son just a few years ago uh, was Joseph Campbell's uh, Hero of a Thousand Faces. And it describes a journey. And the journey is, I think we all go through it, we have our audacious goals and we see this taste for adventure. And then we encounter reality. And then it depends on how we deal with those realities and those discoveries. And so that, that's what it's about, uh, to be, uh, that beginning part. In my case, um, I got hooked on the markets when I was 12 because I caddied at a golf course, and everybody was talking about the stock market. And, um, oh, you were I, listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, I took my caddying money, and the first company I bought was a company by the name of Northeast Airlines. It was only because it was the only company I ever heard of that was selling for less than $5 a share, and I thought I could buy more shares, and that would, if it went up, I'd make more money. And, of course, that was a stupid strategy. But I got lucky. The company was about to go bankrupt, but somebody acquired it, and it tripled, and I thought the game is easy. So that's when I started to get hooked on the markets. And I learned with time that this game is anything but easy. 
because in order to be successful in the markets, you have to make an independent decision that's different from the consensus because the consensus is built into the price. And what it taught me was humility. I have experiences that taught me uh, humility, and that was great. And particularly in 1982, I describe it in the book, but there was one particular experience. I'll, if you want me to explain it, I will. I, I think it's important, yes. Okay. So now I'm seven years after I start my business, and I have a small group of people, and we're on a mission together, and I love these people, and I did calculations that foreign countries would not going to be able to pay their debts to American banks, and that we'd have a debt crisis. And that was a controversial point of view. And it happened. And and Mexico defaulted in August 1982. And I thought that the stock market was going to go down. And I couldn't have been more wrong about the stock market going down. The stock market went up. And at the time, before it was all apparent, I was asked to appear on Wall Street Week, which was the show of the time. And I was asked to testify to Congress to help them understand that. And I was dead wrong. And I lost my clients. I lost so much money that I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad to help to pay for my family bills because I had a family. After all those years. After seven years, I had to let people I really cared about go, and it was down to me. And that was one of the most painful things that ever happened to me in my life, but it was one of the best things that happened to me in my life. And it was because it changed my attitude about decision-making. In other words, it changed my mindset from thinking I'm right to asking myself, how do I know I'm right, right? And that gave me an open-mindedness. It prompted me to do things differently that was really the key to my success. And what that was, most importantly, was to find the smartest people who disagreed with me to understand their reasoning and to really take that approach of combination of have these audacious goals and go after them, but to appreciate the lessons that come from learning and to convert those lessons into principles. So my attitude began to change, that whenever I had a problem, I viewed it as a puzzle to solve that would give me a gem. And the puzzle was, what would I do differently in the future when the next one of those came along? And the gem was a principle that I would write down and refer to when the next one came along. And it was the building of that over a period of time that helped me, particularly, most importantly, knowing what I didn't know. Because what I discovered that what I didn't know was much greater and much more important And I discovered that uh, what I believe is one of the greatest tragedies of mankind, because it could so easily be fixed, is people holding on to opinions in their heads that are wrong and that they don't put out there to stress test. And if you can detach yourself from those opinions and put them out there to properly stress test, it creates a higher probability of being right and it creates a lot of learning. And that was really what my discovery from that painful experience was like. Well, I can feel the pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm glad it happened to you and not mm-hmm. me. <laughs> but this because, is... oh, wow. <laughs> well, I developed a different reaction to pain, okay? Important. I have a saying, pain plus reflection equals progress. In other words, pain is a cue that something is wrong, right? And often what people do is they experience the pain 
And then when the pain goes away, they don't reflect. They don't learn anything from the pain. And by getting that instinctual reaction, okay, you feel that pain, but settle yourself down or when the time passes, that it passes a little, reflect on what are the lessons that that pain is giving you and build on that to make progress. And so our reactions to pain, is pain a bad thing or is pain a good thing? And how to best handle pain to get what you want? There are a lot of ways we can go on this because your book is it covers many of these things. The first thing I want to ask you is how do you write a principle? How do you form a principle? What does it look like when you when you've, you've thought about it? You're like, oh, gee, I did that again. <laughs> you know, yeah. What, am I, yeah. what does a principle look like? First of all, a principle is a way of dealing with a certain type of reality. When that thing comes along again, it's your effective way of dealing with it. And the way that I've learned it is um, that when I'm simultaneously facing a certain type of thing, whatever it is, if I slow myself down and just scribble, or I like to dictate into my iPhone, okay, here's the, the thing, my criteria for dealing with that situation, put it down and record it. So you're observing when that one comes along. Because everything um, happens over and over again. Everything is another one of those. Uh, and so everything's going to happen. And by uh, pausing yourself and thinking, what one of those is it? Like dealing with it as a species, rather than all this stuff coming at you. So you say, you, whatever's coming at you, what one of those is it? And what is my principle for dealing with those? Like if you were thinking a, a, a certain uh, a duck, okay, you encountering a duck. Okay, rather than just saying this thing is coming at me, if it's a duck, how do I deal with ducks? If it's a species that's a rattlesnake, how do I deal with rattlesnake? Each one of the things that you encounter each time, if you start to think, how do I handle that and log it? I mean, it's fantastic. And then also... Get principles from other people. By the way, I, I just wrote these as my principles. I don't really care whether the person you, anybody uses my principles or not. That's not important to me. They're not the principles. No. They're your principles. That's right. And, and so <laughs> I just put them out there um, so that people then uh, have the benefit. I, I feel responsibility to pass them along. But the thing that I, I didn't name the book My Principles or Ray's Principles. I named the book Principles because I want people to think of in a principled way, and I want to get the best principles that for them. I want them to do that. And so they have to decide for themselves. That's why at the beginning of the book, I said, you know, the, the most important thing is you have to make your own decisions while knowing that what is in your head for making those decisions is not adequate. And that's why you have to have that open-mindedness. So anyway, I want those are principles, and people, um, I want them to have their own principles um, wherever they get them. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. My guest today is Ray Dalio, the founder and co-chairman of Bridgewater Associates, which he founded 40 years ago in his two-bedroom apartment. Today, it's recognized as the world's largest hedge fund with over $150 billion under management. You may well have seen his name on various influential people lists from Forbes to Bloomberg to Time. Now you'll know more about his values and how he sees the world in his book, Principles, Life and work. Well, there's a number of people listening who've heard about hedge funds, but they don't know what a hedge fund is. Well, a hedge fund uh, is a vehicle in which you have the ability to 
go short, bet on things going down as well as going up. In the stock market. In the stock, in any market. In any market. Commodity, right. selling pigs. It could be any, it could be selling pigs. It could be uh, currencies. It could be bonds. It can be any asset. So you could be either long or short. So it is not dependent on the direction of the market. And the term hedge fund came by being able to balance positions. In other words, if you find something that's likely to go up and you balance it with something that's likely to go down, you could reduce your risk more than if you didn't have that balance. Hell, so that's hence, what, hedging your bet. Hedging your bet. And you guys are gamblers. Uh, and I'm, we're gamblers. <laughs> we're gamblers. But aren't we all gamblers? In other words, what I mean gamblers aren't... There's one part of the book that deals with uh, risk and opportunity. And because we all, in order to have greater opportunity, we have to take greater risk, okay? And then how we do that is the key to our success. Because we're all betting, on, um, making decisions, and they're bets on chips in life. And life is largely accumulating the best, making the best decisions and accumulating the most chips. So we're all dealing with risk and return, and we all have to balance our bets. Well, you know, that is a, one of my favorite parts of the book because it's not about, well, let's just take a big risk here. If you understand yourself and you look at yourself and what you're able to do, your assessment of the risk by yourself, you know, taking into account, we'll talk about the truth and all that, your assessment of your own risk is so much different than anybody else's. So you'll do something and somebody else will say, oh my gosh, that was so risky. Well, it wasn't that risky for me. <laughs> it well, looked risky to you. Knowing, know, knowing how to balance your risks, knowing how to control your risks. You know, somebody who's walked across the Empire State Building on a tightrope uh, or, or the World Trade Center on a tightrope um, has practiced that and knows how to do that. But there are various techniques. And since we're all making decisions to balance risks, that's what I try to describe there because it, it's a career risk. Or do I have more chance of um, um, if I take this job and they're going to give me equity in it? Um, or do I take the secure job and that kind of thing? We're all having to make those risk-return trade-offs of everything. And a large part of the book is on how to do that well. I think also listening to you earlier talking about, and I was wrong. And I wasn't just wrong, you know, sitting in my cubicle. I was wrong to the world. <laughs> I lost big. I was wrong. So when you're talking about risks, this balance is so important because you could be wrong. People frequently, they don't think about, well, what happens if you are wrong? Right. Well, it's, it's knowing how to be wrong well. Oh, I like that. <laughs> it's like it, fail successfully, wrong well. Same being thing. wrong well. In other yeah. words, to, uh, to know how to balance your risks, to know how uh, to have enough risks that you learn, because most of the learning comes from making mistakes. A lot of learning does. And at the same time, knowing not to get knocked out of the game. And so how do you balance? So what is that amount? I think a lot of people um, mind... Um, mistakes too much. Um, and so bruising yourself, uh, let's say if you're learning how to ski and you're not pushing it and falling, you're not going to learn how to ski well. You have to know how to push that. You have to know how to operate that way and how to learn lessons. And knowing how to do that well is a large part, part of what I'm trying to convey. 
Now, in this time when, boy, you go channel to channel and you never know what anybody's going to say about anybody, there's two things that, that hit me. One is truth. Let's get to that, the radical truth, second. But first, let's talk about thoughtful disagreement. That's something we all need very much. Right. Um, in any relationship for me, and this particularly is how I built the company, I needed an idea meritocracy. In other words, let the best ideas win out. Don't be attached to just your own. How do you know you have the best idea? And in order to do that, there are three steps to doing that. First, put your honest thoughts on the table for everybody to see and have the others there. A lot of people can't do that, but anyway, you need to do that. Second thing is understand the art of thoughtful disagreement. And the third thing is know how to get past disagreements if they remain in an idea meritocratic way. So let me explain that if I may. Um, first, put your honest thoughts on the table. So many uh, barriers, we talk about the barriers to that. Uh, why can't, isn't that such a better way of doing it? I think this, you think that. How do we look at that so at least we know what each other's thinking and cut through it, and that's important. The art of thoughtful disagreement, to know that you might be right and you might be wrong. If there's disagreement, somebody must be wrong. How do you know that wrong person isn't you? So by going into that and knowing how to listen and work together to get to a better place. So there are protocols that we follow that facilitate that, um, and they're outlined in the book. But in other words, to take in and also to respond so that you can get to a better place with thoughtful disagreement. And then the third is... If disagreements remain, how do you get past them in an idea meritocratic way and so in an organization? Or is it just going to be that the boss tells it what tells the path? Or are you going to have one man, one vote? There's a problem there because either autocratic decision-making, like the boss knows best, or um, one man, one vote. That's silly because people know different things, and so they didn't. Both of those are flawed. So we came up with believability-weighted decision-making, and it's it's an important concept. I'll try to you explain it if you want. five people there. One person has the experience precisely in what you're talking about. So they're highly believable. And so all five could vote, and the other four could outvote Mr. Believable. The easiest way to explain it is um, give you an example. Supposing you have an illness, and and you're deciding how to approach that. Well, you don't know much about it, so you go to a doctor. Well, if instead you pick three doctors who are the most believable, in other words, experts who in that, and they're willing to disagree with each other, to have thoughtful disagreement, so that you hear them argue or triangulate on the path, your probability of making a better decision is much greater. If they're at odds and you start to explore why they're at odds and you see how that works, then you begin to get a lot of information that's helpful making the decision, and then you have to make a decision. And the way you're going to make that decision, if you're smart, is you're going to believability way that what you've heard. So you'll listen to one doctor more than another based on his believability, then you make your decision. That improves your probability of being right. 
I'm speaking with Ray Dalio, the founder and co-chairman of Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund. His book is Principles, Life and Work. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation, Biotech Nation, and Tech Nation Health are available at iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, it's all about the biotechnology of CRISPR. Katrine Bosley, the president and CEO of Editus Medicine, explains it all. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Ray Dalio, the founder and chairman of Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund with $160 billion under management. At Bridgewater, they make decisions by assigning weights to the opinions of the people involved, like weighing the opinions of three different doctors about your medical condition. And at times, the rules can get even more complicated, but that's okay. They've developed an app for that. Now, operating that way in an actually structured way that we've created, in which people um, um, get believability points from a variety of different ways, partially their track records, partially mutual assessments and so on, when we make a decision, we believability weight the, the, the opinions. So when we, we come in there, we'll ask a question. Would you do this after a discussion, after we go through our thing of putting our thoughts on the table and having thoughtful disagreement. And if those disagreements remain, then we believe ability weight that. So we have a, a device, um, um, an app, which is on our iPad. And we say, what do you think? And we have come up with the believability weighted decision, which is much better than either of those others, democracy or the other. And as a result, then, so if I'm in a position of making a decision, because I'm, I'm the guy who runs the place, um, I, I think, well, if those three believable people uh, think one thing and I think something different, I don't want to be making, I want to go with their decision if forced to choose a source. I, I want to understand the differences, but I would still go that way. 
And that idea meritocratic, believability-weighted decision-making in an organization is incredibly powerful because it means it's, it's a fair way to make a decision. It engages everybody. It forces them on to think about their believabilities, how they raise them, what they can do to be better. And that's been the secret to our success. So it's not just, well, the boss says, we all kind of know he gets the... So you start to say things that agree with the boss, and pretty soon that's the decision. That's terrible, right? Terrible. Right. Because no one human being can be so smart that they can compare to high-quality collective decision-making. And once you get that, and once you... You just want... For me, I just want to be right, and I don't care if it comes from me. Wherever it comes from, I want to make the best possible decision. Let's talk about radical. Radical truth, radical transparency. Well, right. So radical truthfulness means the ability to say what you really think and to value that and to respect the person's doing that. So let's say we have a relationship. Um, Some people, if, if I don't think you're good at something, um, I might be right, I might be wrong. Um, would you want me to tell you that or would you want me not to tell you that? In most places, they would not want to be told that. Um, okay, I would want to be told that. So radical truthfulness means that by there's a discussion. If, if I've if you think that I'm not good at something and you're going to influence my behavior, you know, am I going to get the job? Am I going to fire? I'm still going to be judging. We're going to be judging each other in our heads and we won't do it in an informed way or a fair way. Where if instead we say, okay, let me put that thought on the table. How do we explore together whether you're good at that thing or not so that we can then move on? That's like the radical truthfulness. Radical truthfulness doesn't mean total truthfulness. It doesn't mean like if somebody's bald spot is growing, you have to tell them that or anything like that. It just means, let's say, put your honest thoughts on the table so we can try to together find out what's true. Okay, radical transparency means that people can see most everything for themselves. Because if I want to have an idea meritocracy and I put things behind the, the curtain, then it allows spin. In other words, um, if I want an idea meritocracy, we're all working together. Um, To be able to listen and see anything that happened is going to give me the capacity to form my own opinion. And that enhances the idea meritocracy. So that radical truthfulness and that radical transparency has created an idea meritocracy. And when people believe that there's an idea meritocracy... It not only raises the probabilities of being right, it makes for a more, uh, a better cohesive relationship. Uh, in one sentence, uh, it's a little bit of a long sentence, but one sentence to describe what, I'm, what I want and what I've been aspiring to is an idea meritocracy in which the goals are equally to have meaningful work and meaningful relationships through radical truthfulness and radical transparency, okay? So, idea meritocracy, meaningful work, being on a mission that you feel you're on that mission together, okay? Meaningful relationships, meaning that you care about each other because there's a joy to a relationship, there's a reward, but also it means tough love, okay? It means holding each other to high standards 
at the same time as that there's caring about that, that is a powerful combination. Because if there's love, and uh, it doesn't have to be literally love, but it means the caring about each other, that that allows you to hold people to higher standards, and that's fantastic. And you could do that by radical truthfulness. There's something very powerful when you know that there, you're, there's truthfulness. And then that transparency, that is a magic combination that I wanted, wanted to convey and I explain in greater depth in the book. Well, there's so many different parts and so many different uh, areas in the book. There's, there's several pages here. And on each page, it says on the top, one sentence bad, on the bottom one sentence good. It's about the same thing, but it says this is when it's bad, this is when it's good. I just picked out one. Bad, don't hold yourself and others accountable. Good, hold yourself and others accountable, which speaks to a lot of what you were talking about here. Um, why put both bad and good? Well, I want to. I, I go through a series of those choices. Right. Um. And I want to make him clear. In other words, I think I wrote five of those choices. And each one of those things, those are the barriers. Because when I watch people encounter each one of these things, they make these choices in life. Am I going to hold myself accountable? Am I going to hold others accountable? Quite often I see that people don't. And I'm just trying to make a fork in the road. In other words, there you can do A and you could do B. And I give five of these. And basically, if they do those five things well, um, pretty much, uh, you know, they're big fork in the road decisions that lead to better outcomes, even though they're not common. Now, there's something else that I like throughout the book. There's a a squiggle, if you will. <laughs> you see it when you just first open the cover. It's like, what is this? What is this going on here? And it's your personal evolutionary process. It's, you know, five steps, then repeat, then yeah. repeat. Let's give people that those five steps. Okay. In order to be successful, there are five things you need to do. You first need to have your goals. What are you going after, right? You have to prioritize. you got to make say, a goal and prioritize. Go and I'd encourage make audacious goals. You want to have a great life, make yourself have audacious goals. Okay. On the way to your goals, you will encounter your problems and your failures. You're going to encounter those things. So second step is identify and not tolerate your problems. Okay. Do Fi- not tolerate those problems. <laughs> right. Identify them and don't tolerate them. Third step is Take the time and diagnose them to get at the root causes. What is causing that problem? That, by the way, might be how you're handling it or maybe some other person is doing something or whatever it is. But get to the root cause of that. And once you've identified the root cause, then you can go on to step four, which is design how to get around that problem, how to get around that. So to fix that root cause make the change. And then that once you have that design of what you need to do, then you need to do the fifth step, which is do it. Push yourself through. I and and you know, goddamn then, do it. Then repeat. <laughs> but I watch people, very interesting. Um I watch people um fail at different steps. A- anyone who does that 
continuously will be successful. And this is true for everybody. As explained in the book, I've been lucky in being able to know the greatest, most successful people in the world, Bill Gates and uh, Elon Musk and XYZ. And I watch them. And in all of their cases, um, they're strong at some of those steps and they're not as strong in other steps. And they know how to work with people who are strong where they are weak. So knowing oneself and knowing the steps that they're having problems with and working with people is the magic formula for success. Let me get back to something here at the end that that is a habit that I think any of us can do is you said that for you know some 30 years now you've been you know writing down principles and thoughts on principles and these kind of things did you just write it in a notebook did you did you keep it in a part of your personal computer what did well, you Well I I started it uh well, a long time ago that I would um whenever I would make a decision uh, in the markets what I would do is before while I was putting on the trade I would write it on a yellow legal pad and then I would why I did it yeah why I did it so that when I closed out the trade I would then reflect on my decisions. So that's how I started doing it. And then I um, put it in. uh, So that's how I first logged them, and I continued to log them that way. And then I typed them into my device, whatever the device at the time was, into BlackBerry or whatever it was, and I accumulated them in that way. And then one thing led to another, and I accumulated them in other ways. Um, and that's how they came about. And then I discovered I could put them into algorithms. So and here's the really an amazing discovery that also 25 years ago I, I found. Uh, you know, algorithms a lot are talked about today, but um, artificial intelligence began in 1953 and the ability to express oneself um, in an algorithm that's carried in the computer existed back then. So um, what I found was um, there are words we're used to that, but there are there's just a different language, which is an algorithm that a computer can understand, and our brain is uh, w- way it works is that there are an estimated 89 billion neurons in our brain, and each one of those is like a tiny little computer, and its programming is by way of synapses that create those paths for decision making. Well, that's the same as a computer. So if you can get your criteria for decisions it programmed into an algorithm and you put it into a computer, then it can operate in the same way the brain does. And then just as the brain receives data in to make its decision, you can put data into the computer to make decisions with, with you in parallel. And so that's what, that's what I d- did or continue to do. And so it, um, as a result, it's like building a computer chess system. So when you um, have a computer chess system that's your criteria and processing in parallel with my own decision making, it's a magical combination because the computer can do things that the human mind can't. It can process more information, it can process information quicker, and it can process information less emotionally. And so, and it doesn't remember, it doesn't forget, rather, a single one of the steps that you wrote down. Right. Well, you might just remember ten of the twenty. It remembers every single one of them. Right. And so, then, when operating in parallel with me, 
so that the computer's making the decisions and I'm making the decisions, like um, like like operating with a computer chess or a GPS. You know, you're driving your car and it says turn right, and you think maybe it should be left. Then there's a reconciliation. Why the difference? It, um, and that when I reconcile all of those, I find that sometimes, most of the time. The computer is considering all of those things, and I'm, oh, gee, I forgot about that because it's complex. Or sometimes the computer's not thinking about the thing that I am thinking about, and it gives me the opportunity to modify my algorithm or including a new algorithm to make the computer make better decisions. And it's that partnership with that which is very powerful. And I really do believe that that's what we're going to be headed to. That, that you, as a decision maker, um, may not even speak the language, but it's okay. It, um, you could have somebody next to you who speaks that language with the computer, and they can help take your criteria, and they can put them in a, into a computer and that operates in parallel with that so that you can make those decisions in that way. And I think that's where we're have, headed with algorithmic decision making. It's that it's on augmenting us but very individually, very personally. Of course it has to, because only you know what you're going after in life, right? You have your own preferences. So, and now you should take in what are the best ways of achieving, making that decision when faced with that. But those, there are choices that you have to make, and they're personal. A lot of our thinking has become programmed from before, there was man before you were born. If you take um, a picture of a snake and you take a picture of a flower and you show it to a child, they will be scared of the picture of the snake and not scared of the picture of the flower because we learn these things instinctually. There and, and, and these kinds of things, when we think of our thinking, are very personal. They're the choices that we each individually have to make. Well, this has been terrific, Ray. I hope you come back. See us again. Thank you. If you have me back, I'll be here. (laughs) My guest today is Ray Dalio. His book is Principles, Life and Work. It's published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and health care with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, the biotechnology of CRISPR. It made a splash several years ago, but what is it? What can you do with it? Katrine Bosley is the president and CEO of Editus Medicine. CRISPR is a technology to do what's called genome editing, and it is basically a way to find a very specific place in the genome and edit it or change it. There are a lot of different applications in basic research, in agriculture. At Editas Medicine, what we're doing is we're working to translate that early, young, exciting science into making medicines for people who have genetically defined diseases where there's a a mutation or a mistake in their DNA. Imagine that you could go in and repair that mistake, repair that broken gene. That's what we're attempting to do, and the technology we're using to do that is CRISPR. Now, what diseases are you working on? We're working across a range of different diseases. It's one of the really exciting and powerful aspects about CRISPR is that you can address many, many different 
genes, diseases, et cetera. So there's a, there's a wide range of potential applications, potential therapies. The first few things that we're working on are in primarily in the eye as well as in diseases of the blood. We have other discovery stage programs in other diseases. But, but let me tell you a little bit more about some of these programs that have advanced the furthest. In the eye, there are diseases in the eye that are caused by genetic mutation and that can lead to blindness. These are rare genetic disorders. And one of the ones where we've really focused our initial efforts is called labor congenital amaurosis 10, or LCA 10. And for patients who, who suffer from this disease, there is a mutation in a particular gene. That gene is called CEP290. And, and it's understood what's the mutation, how does that lead to the disease. So, so the, the biology of this has been figured out. But there are no treatments for these patients. What we approached this disease with CRISPR, we approached it and we said, you know, that particular mutation is one that we think we could apply CRISPR to edit it and essentially correct the broken gene in this case. Now, to do that, we not only have to make a, a very specific and, and efficient editing molecule, CRISPR mo- molecule, but we also have to figure out how to get it to yeah. the cells. In, in this case, in the eye, in the retina, at the back of the eye, there are cells called photoreceptors. And these are the cells that receive light through your pupil and turn that into a signal to your brain that tells you what you're seeing. And those are the cells that are affected by this particular mutation. And the question is, if we can reach those cells and edit the gene in question there, can that then help these photoreceptors actually be functional again. So that's the journey that we're on with this particular program to figure out how to accomplish the edit, how to get it to the cells that we need to get to, the photoreceptors, and then how to test this initially preclinically and then in the clinic. Now, would you have to take the person's own cells from the back of the retina or could you just take general cells? Well, so what we're actually delivering is the editing machinery. So we don't actually in this particular case, we're not delivering cells. We will we will deliver to the cells in the back of the eye. There's a, a it's actually a surgical procedure called a subretinal injection, and so it's a very localized injection that's right next to the photoreceptors. And then the way that the editing machinery gets inside of those photoreceptors is we're delivering it with a viral vector called adeno-associated virus, or AAV. And this viral vector essentially is is good at putting the editing machinery into the photoreceptors. It's We actually are, are leveraging or taking advantage of a lot of progress that's been made in the field of gene therapy, where they've figured out how to use these viral vectors to deliver genes and genetic material to cells. So we can take advantage of that. What we're delivering is the editing machinery, but we can take advantage of this delivery capability that was figured out in gene therapy fields. Now, not everyone is familiar with the word vector in in this sense, but I think everyone can remember that if it's a virus, viruses are able to uh, get into cells, in the inside of cells. So that means if you have a virus that's sort of a, a tame little virus, you can put some things in that virus. It contains DNA. So you can put some things in there that will go into the cell. 
And that's what that's what you're doing. Here. That's what we're doing. That's exactly right. And that's that's what these viruses are great for. We've we've taken away their ability to do anything dangerous, and we're just using them as essentially a, a cargo delivery entity, if you will, to deliver to these cells the editing machinery that that we hope will have a beneficial effect by fixing this bro- particular broken gene. In this particular case, what the the mutation or the mistake in the DNA is one that we want to eliminate or get rid of. So there's this small piece of, of DNA that if we could get rid of it, then the cell should be able to use that gene and make the correct protein. So if you think of a gene is essentially instructions for the cell to make a protein. So when this particular gene has the mutation, it, it makes a mistaken form of the protein that doesn't function. So it turns out in this particular instance, to correct that, there's a little piece of the gene that we want to to knock out or eliminate. So the editing machinery that we've built and designed is to be able to accomplish that, to knock out this little piece of gene. We know that work we've done in the laboratory shows that if we can do that, the cell is then able to make the correct protein. So we know that in the lab, if you can make this edit, the correct protein will be produced. Now, what we need to do is to put that together with other pieces of data to show that we can we can get the editing machinery there to the cells in in a, a human being, ultimately. And we've shown in non-human primates we can do that. So that was a huge step forward that we, we presented data on this earlier this year, a huge step forward that we demonstrated you can deliver to these very specialized cells in the eye, these these photoreceptor cells, and edit in that context in vivo. So that was one step forward. We know we can get that edit. edit. Yes. We know that in cells in the lab, we can get the, if you accomplish the edit, you'll get the corrected protein. So now what we need to do is put all of that together and say, okay, can this then really help patients. So we've got it, all the pieces in theory. Now we have to move that forward and say, will this then give clinical benefit to patients? So all of the, the pieces are there to say, now let's move towards the clinic and test it in, in patients. Once the edit is made, the cell DNA is now a different DNA. It's been fixed, if you will. Is that a permanent fix? That, that is the goal. In, in this particular case, the cells that we are editing, these photoreceptor cells, they are what is called terminally differentiated. And, and what do I mean by that? So those are cells that they're not dividing. They, they are there in your eye and they continue on and they persist. So once we've edited them, they should just continue on with that edit in place. There's there's nothing, there's no kind of mechanism in the cell that's causing the mutation to reoccur. So once we've edited it, it should persist for the life of that cell. So early days yet, but this could be a very interesting fix. Very interesting we, fix. We were very excited about it. And, and I think it's, you know, the, the potential to help patients that have not only LCA10, but as we look at other diseases that we're working on where, you know, of the 6,000 genetically defined diseases, 95% don't have any approved therapies. And, you know, some of them are going to be more technically challenging than others in in terms of being able to apply CRISPR. Um, But as we make progress on any given disease, there 
is leverage to how that might help us better able better able to address other diseases. So, for example, the progress we've made with LCA10, we've figured out not only how to make very specific molecules, we know we can make very specific CRISPR molecules. That's going to apply to any kind of CRISPR medicine we want to make. We also, though, we figured out how to deliver to photoreceptors. Well, there are other diseases where photoreceptors are the cells you need to get to. So that then enables us to to think about how we can start to approach other diseases where we can take advantage of the progress we made in this first disease. And with a, a platform like CRISPR, and particularly a new platform, right? This is, this is new territory. That's part of what's really exciting about it is that every step you make forward in a given program also reads on the potential of what you can do in other areas, whether that's working in, for example, editing T cells. So these are cells in your blood that are part of your immune system. And that's an area where we've made a lot of progress in being able to edit those efficiently and specifically and all of that. And there are many diseases that could potentially be addressed with that capability of editing T cells. The earliest work we're doing is actually in collaboration with our our partner, Juno Therapeutics, where in the area of oncology, editing T cells in conjunction with some of the ways that they're engineering T cells is a very exciting uh, direction that that has the potential to treat not only blood cancers, but maybe solid tumors as well. So this is what's called CAR-T technology in cancer, where you're introducing, you're engineering those T cells to basically better go fight that cancer and you know, harnessing the immune system to go uh, tackle that cancer. They have a, a basic technology to do that called chimeric antigen receptors or CARs, and we add editing on top of that to make them even better at fighting cancer. Well, this has been terrific, Katrine. Please come back and see us. Keep us updated if you would. That would be great. I'd love to. Katrine Bosley is the president and CEO of Editus Medicine. More information is available at editusmedicine.com. That's Editus, E-D-I-T-A-S, editusmedicine.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Anne Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.